are on. I'm going to open with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for this new day, and we thank you for the chance to be together and to continue talking about the book of Romans. Help us, Lord, to um, learn from you and to grow from you and to follow you, and uh, give us your peace. This we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, last week we talked something about this question of baptism. Carol mentioned, I think Carol has a, uh, a sprained ankle, and so that's what she's dealing with. Um, Maury, of course, has a broken ankle. We just, uh, we just got ankle injuries all over the place. Um, when you hear baptism, what do you think baptism means? What do you think baptism is? Going in the water. All right. Accepting Christ. What about infant baptism? There's a, there's a touchy subject. Some say, makes no sense to baptize babies because babies can't accept Christ. Others say, you should baptize babies because your children are in Christ. And right there, you have the question, what on earth is baptism about? How does it work? Now, Carol last week, of course, made some comments about wondering about infant and adult baptism, and that's been a, a big question. What's, what's interesting is that that question really arises, seems to arise in the church, mostly in the modern period. And if I'm wrong about that, someone in the comment section is going to correct me. Um, part of why I want to go there is because we have this text that we're dealing with, which I think is one of the most important baptism texts that we have. So I'll read it in the NIV. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? That's based on the arguments that we looked at last week. By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Okay. Well, let's deal with let's deal with that question already. What do you think the Apostle Paul means that we have died to sin? So that's a really hard question because there's the physical, our physical understanding of dead, which we all have experience with. Um, death is, you know, we, you know, we have a body and it goes and goes and goes. And then, you know, there are something happens. Let's say we have this line, which is death. And we get close to it, but then there's an intervention and we get far from it. And then we get close to it. There's an intervention that we move a little bit away from it. And I mean, sort of the end of our life often looks like that. We might be young. Let's say we are we started out, we're born. Usually, let's see, babies are pretty fragile, so let's make the line like this. Because any little bump with a baby, a bad illness can kill the baby. You know, you have infant mortality. But as you grow, you grow, you get stronger and stronger. But then, let's say as a teenager, there's all sorts of incidences that can, you know, car accident, drug abuse a virus, 
But then, you know, as we grow older, we, we tend to then have a line like this. So, died to sin. Hmm. What on earth does that mean? So, let's look at... Oh, okay. So what, what would you mean by that? Sin doesn't have control of us anymore. Through Christ, we can fight sin. Okay. There's a lot in that sentence. Now, the fact that we, when Edie says this, we all sort of have an understanding of what she means, and we say, yeah, that seems right. Through Christ, we can fight sin. But, you know, the more I talk to people who have no background in church or are deeply skeptical about church, if I told them that, it's hard for me to understand what they would think. Um, now, we might say, with a gun, we can fight a bear. They would understand that. <laughs> with a gun, they would fight a bear. But Christ isn't really like a gun. We might say, through medicine, We can fight disease. Well, suddenly, yeah, we sort of get that. But notice now that medicine is a very broad term. And Edie also didn't say, through Jesus we can fight sin. Although that wouldn't have been unintelligible or wrong to us, but she chose the word Christ. Because, now I've said before that if you read the, the Synoptic Gospels, we hear about the kingdom. If you read the Gospel of John, you hear about eternal life. And these are all sort of, these are all sort of synonymous. And when we read Paul, we hear about being in Christ. And he doesn't say in, he might say in Jesus Christ, but he usually doesn't say in Jesus, although he could. And now we have to get into what on earth do we mean by Christ? All right. What does this word Christ in Greek, you know the Hebrew version of it? Messiah. And really the English version of it is anointed. Okay. So what does anointed mean? Let's, let's, ta let's take it at its most physical level. What does anointed mean? What is, what is anointing? Play that, give me a little, give me a little drama, a little narrative, a little picture, a little movie of anointing. Who's, who is about to be anointed in the next year? Charles. Okay. And the way that's going to work is they're going to be in this grand church. Everyone is going to wear amazing, um, costumes. It's going to be all the elements of the costumes are going to be deliberately chosen. Most of the people watching the costumes aren't going to have any understanding of all the elements of the costumes, but they might have someone on TV or on YouTube probably because TV's too low resolution. Someone on YouTube will take a picture of Prince Charles and they'll look at what he's wearing and they'll go through every element of every piece of clothing that he's wearing. This is what's in the crown. This is what's in the robe. This is what's in, and then they'll look at the priest, and someone on YouTube will take that whole thing apart. 
pageantry. Another word we could use would be ceremony. And what they are going to do is they are going to anoint Charles King. All right? Now, this, again, this is super complex for us today, but we all have a sense of it. What does it mean that Charles is going to be king? Now, it's easier if we, say, rewind the clock back 1,000 or 2,000 years. So when someone is anointed king, what does that mean? How does that change their life? Okay, the king, the king can, well, what can the king do? Give orders. What kinds of things can the king order? When we go into a restaurant, we order, don't we? We order the kind of food we want to eat. Now, a king will order probably the kind of food he wants to eat, but his powers to order are far larger. Order his military to go into battle. Order taxes. Order, make orders to get money from people. Go ahead, Delphine. You're shaking your head. Oh, okay. So he's a figural head of state. He can't order, but when he talks, people listen. But sometimes if there's sort of a conflict, when he talks and people don't listen, everybody pays attention to that, right? And they wonder what's going to happen. Now, if the people who didn't listen die, people pay attention to that. If the people who didn't listen get away with it, people pay attention to that. Okay, let's go back. Through Christ, we can fight sin. Hmm. What do we mean by sin? Missing the mark. Good. Now, now missing the mark is a huge term because part of mark missing is both, remember we've been talking about the mediated and immediate. Part of Mark missing when it comes to people is rebellion. And that's when we actively choose something against the good or the right or the Mark hitting. Some of Mark missing is corruption, where we just can't hit the Mark because we're unable to. It's not within our strength, basically because of limitation. So it's helpful to have both of those ideas when you think about sin. Okay, let's go back to the text. By no means, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Now, What's really interesting is that notice how we live in Christ and we live in sin. Doesn't this sound very much like an arena? I, I've spoken before about these ancient ways of thinking. Um, we talked about the meta-divine realm. And in paganism, you had gods who were sort of big people up in the sky in the meta-divine realm. But the meta-divine realm was impersonal. It was an arena. And it was within this arena that, well, let's say one of these gods is Zeus. But Zeus always wrestled with the fates. Who were the fates? 
It's a word we still use. This was fated to him. What does that mean? If you think about the ancient Greek play Oedipus Rex, there's a prophecy that someone is going to sleep with his mother and kill his father. And so everyone tries to get around this horrible event from happening. But in the play, all of the ways they try to avoid it from happening actually brings about what they're trying to avoid. And we would say it was fated to him. And what the Greeks did at some point was they began talking about these fates. And these fates are, they were usually portrayed as women. The fates were, um, you cannot escape your fate. We all understand that word. And the fates were sort of embodied, personalized characters that embody that dynamic that, you know, it's like the person who, it's like, it's like the person that says, I'm never going to get a divorce. Okay, well, that's, that's a good aspiration. So they go into a marriage and they say, I'm never going to get a divorce. And the person they're marrying says, it's great. I don't want a divorce either. Then years go by and the wife does something the husband doesn't like. And the husband in his mind thinks, if she keeps doing this, this threatens our marriage and we might get a divorce. So I've got to stop her from doing this. And then the husband gets enormously controlling and tries to control every little thing about his wife's life. What happens if he keeps down that road? It's going to get worse. If he keeps down that road, he's going to get a divorce. And his divorce grows out of his inordinate determination to avoid divorce. Think of, I can make up another story like that. Howard Hughes. Remember Howard Hughes? He was the Elon Musk of the 1930s and 40s. He was deep into filmmaking, slept with innumerable starlets, um, was big into aviation. His wealth grew out of the fact that his father had engineered a critical piece of infrastructure that allowed oil drilling at, in the early 20th century, which made him astoundingly rich. The older Howard Hughes got, the more he didn't want to die. And you know what he knew? Germs can kill you. So he decided he would battle germs and avoid germs. And if you look at how he died in the end, guess what? His battle against germs killed him. So if you make anti-divorce your God, it will probably cause your divorce. If you make anti-germ your God, it will probably cause your death, okay? And so these were sort of the fates, were sort of these ironic figures that said, here in the metadivine realm, there are laws that impinge even upon Zeus and Hera and Apollo. But it's impersonal. You can't escape your fate. The Hebrew conceptualization believed that nothing was above God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There isn't an impersonal nature above and beyond God, you can't go above God. Now, this sets up in the Middle Ages a really fierce debate that we're still dealing with today beneath the surface. But this Hebrew conceptualization says that basically God is arenic. And 
this gets really interesting because we talk about being in Christ or in sin. And when we talk about sin in this way, we're not talking about sin as acts of rebellion. That's usually what we mean when we talk about sins or let's say transgressions. We're talking about a state of sin. Okay, now let's use one of the most salient examples of this in our language, living in sin. All right. If we say, oh, those two are living in sin, what do we mean? Okay, they are living in a context. We might say they're cohabitating. But that's sort of a circumlocution. A circumlocution is a way around saying something because lots of people live in the same house. But what we're really saying is that they are, they're having a sexual relationship and they're having a habitual sexual relationship. They're having, and, 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 and we'd say they're even having an exclusive sexual relationship. And we stack all of these things up, living in sin versus living in, and listen to us now, the state of matrimony, right? It's living in sin versus marriage. Marriage is an arenic quality. Two people live in two people live in a marriage. A marriage is a state. Now, you have died to sin. Now, right away we're thinking, hmm, is that I've died to rebellion in my life. I might still commit acts of rebellion, but I've died to an arena. I've died to the sin arena and I'm living in the Christ arena. That's what we're saying. We're saying that there's sort of two arenas. There's Christ and there's sin. Okay. Now we think about this, you know, we think about nations. I live in the United States. I live in Canada. I live in Great Britain. I live in the Netherlands. Um, live in Christ, live in sin. What does it mean to live within an arena? So th this couple is living in sin. They're living in habitual uh, in, in fact, just the sharing a roof um, is in some ways facilitating, but it's not just the sexual aspect. They are probably making food for each other habitually. They are um, having companionship habitually. I mean, all of these things that are sort of like marriage, but They're not married. What would it take for them to get married? Okay. I would say that in this state of living in sin, there are all sorts of agreements, but they're mostly implicit. They probably haven't sat down and said, okay, this is what you can do with the opposite sex. But I'll tell you, if one of them seems to start to run afoul of that agreement, the other will notice. And they might hold up quiet for a while, or they might say something, but there's an agreement under there. What's the main thing that's different from, let's erase Christ here and put in marriage. Okay. Commitment. Although, again, just like with agreement, 
they, when people in our culture start living together, it's a signal of commitment. When someone invites the other one to stay or gives them a key, now pay attention to that because you'll watch it in the movies. Giving a key has sort of become ceremonial, hasn't it? And if you watch movies where there's this couple, they're living together, they have a fight, there's tension. One goes to the other one and says, I want the key back. And, and even within marriages, if, if I come home after church today and my wife has changed the locks on my house, oh yeah, that means something. <laughs> it's like, oh. She locked me out. Or if I come home and all of my clothes are strewn about the front yard, oh, there's a little ceremony. That means something. What's the main difference between, not the main difference, but a significant difference? And it's really hard for us to sort of put this into words. Okay, there's a license, but that's a relatively modern thing. Marriage is far older than a document down at the county clerk in Sacramento. And in fact, in many countries in Europe still, there's marriage in the eyes of, let's say, um, the state of England, and there's marriage in the eyes of the church. And, and they might be recorded in different places. But What's at the heart of this? And if, if some, what happens if someone elopes? What do they skip? Or they, ah, the ceremony. What does ceremony and anointing have in common? Isn't that the whole thing that Charles is going to be coronated at some point? He's, he's sort of like, King, you know, I, they, they, I'm sure they have a word for it, but I don't know what it is. He's the, he's the, he's the king to be. He's the heir apparent, even though his mother is dead and has been dead for a little while now. But they, you know, they might already call him king. But if someone is really careful, they'll say, Ahem, he's not king yet. He's not king until the ceremony, until the anointing, until the agent arena relationship is fully constituted and brought into effect. Sanctioned by God. That's right. Because that's why, where's he going to be coronated? In a church? By a priest? With all the accoutrements of religious ceremony. And when we marry, well, now people are sort of having destination weddings. They don't want to be married in a church. They want to be married on a beach. Why? Why a beach? Why not down here on Florin and Amherst? We don't see people like congregating here in dresses and you know, I want to get married at Florin and Amherst right there by that stoplight, right there by that bus station. We'll have the, the man, the bride and the groom stand on that little bench and we'll have um, the bus driver come and let them on the bus and that'll be our ceremony. No, we don't do that. Why not? Why a beach? Why a mountain? Why a vista? It's beautiful. It's romantic. It's it's, it's somehow like a church. It's somehow religious, but we won't use that word. So, see, where I'm getting at is one of the things that has changed what happens in baptism? Because, you know, Carol asked me last week about this whole infant-adult baptism thing. And what happens in baptism 
is in many ways something analogous to what happens in marriage. Now, we got to be really careful with this, and you can very quickly begin to see why, in the modern era, this question about infant baptism suddenly became very real. Because, well, we would think it very strange today if, let's say, when my children are small, I got them married to someone else who was a child. And you do that. No, no, you can't do that because they can't live together. It's inappropriate. Sexual activity is inappropriate, blah, blah, blah. But for many centuries, human beings have done this. Augustine, for example, lived for a long time with a concubine. What's a concubine? Kind of a substitute wife. Not a wife. But he cohabitate. Had a, Augustine had a son with his concubine, who he loved, and he loved his concubine. But he never married his concubine. Why not? He was betrothed to another woman. Actually, he was betrothed to a very young girl. Now, there wasn't anything, you know, he didn't have sex with this young girl. He's not a pedophile. But he was betrothed to her because marriage was about different things. Now, when we talk about baptism today, there's a lot of relationship between baptism and marriage in this. Because both are arenic situations. And the reason that, in Christian terms, we baptize children are because our children are in Christ. And when we say that, we say, hey, wait a minute. What do you mean our children are in Christ? Ah, very good question. What do we mean our children are in Christ? What do we mean by being in Christ? Are you saying that my child is saved? Now, about a hundred years ago, there was a very fierce church fight in the Netherlands over presumptive regeneration. It was all about whether baptizing children makes them saved. But what are we talking about when we're baptizing children? Well, it's, it's not unlike the situation between marriage and living in sin. Now, when I point this out, some people will right away say to me, I have seen couples who have never been married in a ceremony, don't have a marriage license, who have better relationships than couples who are married. And I'd say, I don't doubt that for a minute. Doubt that at all. I've seen some people who get married and it's it's a mess. And I see other people who are living together and it's going great. They honor each other. They sacrifice for each other. They're together for the long term. So then they're like, well, then pastor, what's the deal with marriage? Ah, it's a good question. And it almost goes the same as with baptism, right? I mean, Carol, Carol herself, who was baptized, hopefully she's watching this because we're talking about you, Carol, because uh, you asked a good question last week. Carol said, I don't remember my baptism. And I don't either. I was baptized when I was a small infant. And there's a picture of it. And that's rare back in the 60s. I've got pictures of my children baptized. But there's a picture of it, and I don't remember it. I, 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 wasn't forming, I wasn't forming autobiographical memories at that point. But you know what? I was baptized into Christ. What does that mean? What does it mean that I was baptized into Christ? 
Oh, it very much does. Why? What is covenant? Covenant is another one of these words that's very arena. I am living in my house under covenant is sort of like contract, but it's also different. And so I am living in my house under a contract, under a mortgage contract with this church. Okay. And I keep paying every month my mortgage to this church. If I stop paying my mortgage to this church, are y'all going to kick me out of the house? Well, the church will probably treat me better than a bank would. But I can imagine a scenario by which I default on my mortgage and the church kicks me out of my house. Eventually, yeah, it would. So covenant is another one of these terms that is very arenic. I'm living under this covenant. And in marriage, so marriage is a covenant. Marriage is a better covenant than a mortgage is. Because when you stand up there and you're married, one of the big issues, at least very commonly within cohabitation and marriage, is adultery. It's shortcut of way of saying, I'm not going to have sex with anybody else. All right. Do some marriages survive adultery? Yes, they do. A lot of marriages don't, <laughs> but some marriages do. Is adultery the only reason marriages fail? No. Or someone might say, you have betrayed this covenant while never sleeping with another person. In other words, there are many more ways to betray the covenant than just having sex with another person. And so, again, we have this arena quality, and this is absolutely instrumental in understanding Romans 6 of what we're talking about when we're talking about sin and baptism and Christ, that all of these things have arena qualities. By no means, we are those who have died to sin. I would say we have died to the arena of sin. Does that mean that we no longer commit acts of rebellion, trespasses, or other sinful deeds? No. It means we're in a new arena. Now, we can either live in keeping with that arena, or we can live in rebellion to that arena. And again, remember the mediated and immediate. Okay, let's say, let's, let's use an arena called the church, which is kind of close to being in Christ. Okay. Now, Let's say I decide to do all sorts of very non-Christian things in the church. Will the church just go away right away? No. There'll be tension. There'll be conflict. There'll be struggle. There'll be all these dynamics. But the church sort of stays there. Now, at some point, this is part of the reason John Calvin says discipline is a mark of the church. Because if an arena has no discipline, the arena will cease to function. Think about a family. A family is a very arenic thing. You are in the family. You are in the household. And there are rules in the household. Let's say someone in the household decides they're going to do drugs all the time. What's going to happen to that family if a member of the family becomes a drug addict? One of two things is going to happen, usually kind of both. 
Either the family is going to put that drug addict out of the family, or the drug addict is going to destroy the family. Same thing in a marriage. Either the person is going to be put out of the marriage, like a divorce, or the marriage is going to be destroyed. When the person is put out, that's mediated. When the marriage is destroyed, it's immediate. And it goes in time. Same thing happens in churches. Same thing happens all over the place. Same thing happens with baptism. You can destroy your baptism. But that puts us right back into this old tension that we looked at before about unconditional covenants and conditional covenants. Because we want to know, is baptism an unconditional covenant? It's really hard for us to answer that. Right. Right. And so then, God, in a sense, you hear it again and again in the New Testament. I can raise up out of these stones children of Abraham. What on earth does that mean? It means that bloodline is insufficient as a guarantor of the arenas that we're talking about. Now, this is incredibly important here because what Paul is doing here in the first bit of Romans is he's talking about arenas and their dynamics. And, and this is tremendously important to us because just like in our culture, we say, Psh, what is a marriage? It was amazing that we spent about three decades saying marriage is no big deal. And then suddenly as a culture, when the question about gay marriage came along, now suddenly marriage is hugely important. Marriage is, you're a good person or a bad person based on where you stand on this issue in our culture. It's like, well, wait a minute. We just spent 40 years saying Marriage is no big deal. Marriage license is just a piece of paper. Yeah, but we're not going to fight about gay marriage. Guess what? That piece of paper suddenly means all sorts of things. Whichever way you look at it, this dynamic around it says, maybe these things aren't so easily dismissed. Maybe we don't know a lot about these dynamics. What's in a ceremony? A ceremony is nothing. What's, what, what's, What's in a wedding cake? A wedding cake's nothing. What's in, what's in flowers at the wedding? Flowers are nothing. We've had, we've had high-level court cases over flowers and cakes and weddings. It's like we spent 40 years saying it's nothing, and now suddenly it's everything. What's with that? What are we talking about? We don't know. These things are far larger, far more durable, far more important than we imagined that they were. Same thing with churches. I mean, we, you know, in, in, in some ways, everything's been getting low church, low church, low church. And then when certain other values in the culture suddenly, you know, let's say it's in some churches, it's incredibly important that you not only have let's say, a gay, lesbian, or transgender clergy, but make sure they wear a stole. Well, why? Well, why do those churches that, are, that tend to be really, really self-conscious about those issues, why are they suddenly really into vestments? And it's like, what's going on there? I mean, whatever side you fall on these issues, it's enormously interesting that the expression of all of these issues has suddenly changed in our culture. These ceremonies are not nothing. Same with a marriage. So when I, you know, my, when my wife and I were, um, when we got engaged, we were heading off into the mission field, and I knew we were going into a very poor place. And I thought, you know, 
it'd be awfully gaudy for us, for my you know wife to show up on the mission field with a big diamond on her finger. We're, t- we're talking about people that are barely have enough food to live. And here my wife's going to walk around with a diamond on her finger. What does that say? So we both got, you know, gold bands. And I remember before I ever got engaged, we were having a little meeting at seminary with one of our seminary advisors. And I remember the guy saying, make sure you buy your wife a diamond ring. And I thought, why? Why? But you know that I didn't get her a diamond in some ways eats at the memory of the marriage all the way back to the beginning. You say, well, why? What sense does it make? I bet you all of you know why. I, as a guy, I didn't get it. I was a young guy. What did I understand? If I had followed the tradition, and even though I'm a poor seminary student, didn't have any money, but at least bought something, I would have been better off. You know, eventually, you know, we got a diamond. But what's the deal with a diamond? It's just a rock. Oh, it's a symbol. It's a great rock. It's an expensive rock. What, what, that, what that guy is saying is, I'm willing to sacrifice for you. What does that sacrifice mean? It means value. I value you. It's not just a ring. It's not just a rock. It's communicating something. And, and, and our world is full of these things. And even when some things sort of go away, new things take their place and sort of act functionally like those old things did. All right. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? What on earth is Paul talking about? He's talking about this arena of Christ and sin staying inside of it. Because in the last chapter, he talked about the fact that in some ways, Sin shows the power of Christ. And we love those stories. Why is it that in churches, you know, the, the person that was raised in a Christian home and they've, they've never done anything really wrong and they've always been good and they show up for church every week and they support the church financially and they serve in office and they volunteer. I'll tell you, churches run on people like that. But you know who we put on stage? The person who rebelled, drank terribly, lived a dissolute life, did horrible things, and then came to Christ. And there's this huge dramatic transformation. We put them on stage. Why? Why? Because in that, Christ looks powerful and enormous. And people look at the person who grew up in Christ and they say, well, that's just kind of... That's just kind of how they were raised. Okay. But what they don't see is that this person who was raised in Christ here is a function of a massive, over long periods of time, this is just their little life, over centuries and centuries and broad um, population, an enormous thing happened in Christ that led to someone being raised in a home where mom and dad were married. And the whole community around them kind of kept them married. (laughs) You see, a marriage isn't just supported from the inside. It's created by pressure on the outside. And if you were raised in a community where there was like no divorce, and that people are struggling in marriage, It sounds very unromantic and crass, but you know what? Everybody in that community is applying pressure from the outside and keeping them married. And now there are times when maybe it would have been better for that marriage to have ended. But that's probably the 10% cases. And 10% is not nothing, especially if you're in that 10%. But 
for their other times, they're better off that the marriage stayed together. All of this is about being in Christ and not living in sin. Because right now in this world, let's put the world outside as the big arena, and then Christ, and then sin. See, sin is sort of a bridgehead to the outside world, right? And through sin, stuff is leaking into Christ. But Christ <laughs> is leaking into the world. And it's a very dynamic relationship. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Paul is saying, this part in here, that's what we have to address. That's what he's dealing with in the book of Corinthians. Or don't you know that in all of us, that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Ooh. Now, one of my favorite regular commenters on YouTube is a guy named Anselman. Anselman, to the degree... He's never signed up for a Rando's conversation. He's got an open invitation. I know you're going to watch. I've, he lives in Scotland, and he's Anglican. And I, these baptism things really bother him because, and I think many Christian Reformed people, if you look at the baptism form, the, 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 the main element of the baptism form is washing away of sin. And that's an absolutely legitimate thing to talk about in our baptism. That is part of the symbolism. But here in Romans 6, baptism and death are deeply tied. Now, if we think about this arenically and we think about Christ, and we recognize that baptism is the boundary line between the world and Christ, and that's why circumcision, you'll hear when you ask a Christian Reformed minister, why do you baptize infants? One of the things you'll hear about it from a Christian Reformed minister is, well, baptism replaces circumcision. And a Baptist will say, show me the text. Is it really a text in the New Testament that says baptism replaces circumcision? Circumcision sort of passes away in the church as this function, but baptism replaces it. One of the one of the most important one of the one of my favorite baptism ceremonies I ever did was on. I'm not sure it was actually a river, but. Someone told me it was. I can't be sure because when you get out into the sticks between Haiti and the Dominican Republic, never quite sure what's what. But we can use it for Texas and Mexico. On one side of the river is Mexico, and the other side of the river is Texas. Baptism is going under and coming out the other side. You read about it in the Old Testament. It happens twice. They go through the Red Sea, pass through on dry ground. Then when they come into the promised land, is it really the promised land because there's the transport, blah, 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 blah. The details are unimportant. The symbolism is essential. They pass through the Jordan River on dry ground. And Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians connects that with baptism. Why? Because baptism is this boundary between Christ and the world. And Paul here talks about it as death. Now, this what Anselman keeps complaining about is I keep talking about baptism as an ordeal. And when I asked what baptism was, Joanne knew right away, it's about going in the water. And that's part of the reason Baptists complain about 
churches like ours because you bring that kid up to the front and you take the water and you just sprinkle a little on their head. You can go on YouTube and watch some Orthodox baptism of babies. They take that baby and they're like, whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. Now, most of us know, you know, you can do that to a baby and the baby won't be hurt. I mean, they, they play with babies in pools, right? When they're below a certain age, they put the baby in the pool just for a minute. That baby will go underwater. And because, well, when the baby was in the womb, guess what? It was underwater. Oh, wait a minute. Wait, wait a minute. Death, birth, water. Yeah, it's all there. They, the Orthodox, they take that baby, they go whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. Why three times? Father, son, Holy Spirit. When I baptize here, it's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Baptists, they put them under the water. That's, that's good symbolism too. Our Christian Reformed Church says, doesn't matter whether you sprinkle. It's the symbolism that counts in the ceremony. But this is what we're saying. This is what we're saying. This baby is now in Christ. It's like, now you can scooch over the Rio Grande without a document. It's not the same. Baptism is entering a new reality, entering a new arenic reality. Okay, but, okay, back to marriage and living in sin. There might be a lot, you know, day-to-day -day life might look pretty much identical. Always these lingering things. And, and you find it. They live in sin for a while. And then usually what happens today is at some point or another, someone wants a baby. And that's usually when they get married, don't they? Or let's say someone is in the country from another country and they want a permanent residency. Well, then they get married. And, and, and suddenly you begin to realize, Man, there's a lot to this. But it's not immediately obvious. And we live in a culture that wants to sort of not pay attention to it. But it's right here. We were baptized into Christ Jesus. We're baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Oh boy. That's what being in Christ means. That this sin will begin to shrink. That Christ will begin to grow. That our little individual selves within this whole um within this whole movement will grow that Christ grows it starts in baptism all right we're out of time okay. lord we are very small and we don't know a lot But we bump into things that we don't understand. We bump into it in marriage. We bump into it in English royalty. We, we bump into it all over the place. And then, then we bump into it in your word. And you say things like, we've died to sin and live in Christ. That we are united with Christ, united with Christ's death in baptism. And we struggle with this. And Lord, it's a good thing that we're, it's not all about what we can articulate, but it's about far deeper realities that are far larger than each of our individual lives. And it's about the power of God moving in the world today. Help us to continue to grow in our knowledge of it. But more importantly, help us to continue to grow in living out faithfully within it. Hear our prayer. In the name of Jesus, amen.